traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I am actually born in Esbjerg. I have been living in Esbjerg almost my entire life. That's Jesper Frost Rasmussen, who is now the mayor of Esbjerg, a Danish port town of 72,000 people on the North Sea. The Danish Chicago was the saying uh, when I was a kid. Fishery was uh, the very big industry in Esbjerg. There was a lot of vessels at the port side. Then the oil and gas activities was increasing during the 80s and 90s. It was a rough city and a lot of blue-collar workers. People were a bit concerned about entering town in the late Saturday evening. A lot of fighting and stuff like that. But if you travelled to Esbjerg today, you'd see a very different story. This has changed completely in the last 20 years because now the people of the city are so different. Now you see a lot of young people, students, sitting with their laptops on a cafe, drinking a coffee and working. As it's happening in all bigger cities, that was not present in Esbjerg 10 years ago. It's now no longer just a hard industry. It's really good-looking places and cafes and restaurants and culture in a much higher level than earlier. The voices now are changed so much because I think we have uh, more than 150 nationalities in the municipality of Esbjerg, so people are talking many different languages when you're walking up and down the pedestrian street or going into a bar or whatever. At the heart of the transformation of this town has been a boom in green industry. We have created a lot of jobs in the offshore wind industry. We have been going from basically no jobs to 5,000 jobs within the last 10, 12 years, and are expecting that to grow. The sea change in Esberg's economy is a product of a much bigger transformation that's underway in the North Sea. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. And in today's show, the new North Sea economy. First, we'll find out about the ambition for offshore wind in the North Sea. Nine countries that are close to the North Sea have the objective to produce 260 gigawatts by 2050. And that's enough to power all of today's 200 million households in Europe. Then, we'll hear from the world's biggest offshore wind developer about its plans in the region. Now we're talking about one gigawatt or two gigawatt sites. That corresponds to a very large nuclear power station. And finally, we'll explore the futuristic infrastructure envisioned for the North Sea. We are planning for an island 100 kilometers off the coast of Denmark, which is, in fact, a physical island that is built on concrete, sand, rocks. Alice, Mike, hello. Hello, and uh, welcome back, Mike. A belated Happy New Year. 
Hey, Alice. Hey, Tom, and welcome to the podcast. Sorry, I've not had a chance to say it yet as I was away last week. Thanks and welcome back. You've been off somewhere quite adventurous, Mike. How was your trip? Yeah, uh, I was actually in Jordan, which is really interesting. I haven't taken that many trips to the Middle East before. I was sort of using the opportunity of coming back from London to Singapore and doing it on the way. Uh, we got a chance to visit the Dead Sea, but it is a different body of water that we are here to discuss today. Yeah, that's right. And one with significantly worse weather, actually. In fact, bad weather is one of the reasons that we're talking about it. For decades, the North Sea has been a vital source of Europe's oil and gas, but now it's going green. That's because although the region's hydrocarbons might be finite, its gales certainly aren't. And that's not just critical for its booming wind power industry. There are a range of other secondary economic benefits that result. To talk about those, I want to bring in Mathieu Favas, our finance correspondent, who's recently spent some time travelling around the region to understand what's going on. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you recently ventured to the inhospitable North Sea and in the depths of winter. What inspired you to do that? I guess it's probably two things. So the first one is the set of micro trends. You know, last year, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine, and that really exacerbated and showed the extent to which Europe depends on Vladimir Putin's Russia for its fossil fuels. We also had pretty strong evidence of climate change here in Europe with a set of record heat waves. And of course, over the winter, we had record energy prices. And all this has pushed Europe to really accelerate its drive towards renewables. And offshore wind is at the core of that. The North Sea, because it's a very windy place to start with, is likely to be at the core of this effort of boosting offshore wind. Now, Esbjerg, which I visited, is a microcosm of what's at play at the moment because it's a port to start with, which used to be big on fishing and then big on oil and gas and lately has become the capital of offshore wind for Europe, if not the world. And if you go to its port, the road that crosses it and divides it in two is a powerful illustration of what we're talking about because on the right-hand side, you have a coal-fired power plant, which is due to be retired this year, and the white fumes that it belches out rise above a stack of coal and disassembled oil and gas pipeline that are standing idle there and not being used, basically. And on the other side, you've got an area which is as big as 150 football pitches, so massive, and you've got rows after rows of parts of offshore wind turbines. They're gigantic, you know, like chunks of towers of turbines, gearboxes, and blades that can be as long as 100 meters. They're all there waiting to be transported at sea, waiting to be clicked together to form these gigantic offshore wind turbines. So we thought this would be a powerful way to show the energy transition in action. And you had a chance to meet with some of the people who actually maintain these wind farms in the middle of the ocean. What does that take? Yeah, it takes quite a lot. So I met with the boss of the base from where the crews that service a set of wind farms, which include Onsref 2, which is one of the biggest of the Danish coast, uh, 60 kilometers away from the coast. And basically, for a good chunk of the year, between March and October, when the weather is not too bad, most of them spend weeks at sea on an accommodation platform, a sort of sea-borne hotel, to be close to the farms, where you can find enough cabins to host 24 people. There's PlayStations, there's a gym, there's even a chef that caters for them. Now, they stay there because commuting daily would take 
hours of sailing, also they'd have to brave like meters high waves every day, which would be quite a lot. And this is another example of the revolution that's at play because we're moving further and further away at sea to capture uh, stronger, more consistent winds. Dogger Bank, which is going to be the biggest offshore wind farm once constructed and is going to start producing electricity this year, you know, some parts of it are as far as 200 kilometers away from the shore. Right. And long term, what is the ambition for the North Sea economy? There are several strands to this ambition. The first one and most obvious one is to produce a lot of electricity. So nine countries that are close to the North Sea have the objective to produce 260 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2050. And that's enough to power all of today's 200 million households in Europe. And that's about five times what we produce globally today in terms of offshore wind. So that's an enormous amount of power. And this power is going to be cheap, is going to be green. And the other thing that you can do with a lot of cheap and green power is to produce hydrogen, which is to use electricity to split water molecules in two parts and keep the hydrogen part. Right now, we do it a bit. We call it blue hydrogen because we use natural gas to produce hydrogen. But with a lot of renewables, be it offshore wind or be it solar, we'll be able to produce green hydrogen, which, of course, will produce far less in terms of carbon dioxide. And hydrogen is interesting and is likely to be central to our ambitions to achieve climate targets because, first of all, it's a way to store electricity when it can't be used straight away. And that's very useful for offshore wind because when the wind blows very strongly, you may not have a use for all this power. There's a lot of viability. But perhaps more importantly, it can be used as a fuel by industries that at the moment cannot be easily electrified. So think, for example, of air transport or shipping or steelmaking. And if we have green hydrogen to pour these, then we solve a big problem. The world's biggest offshore wind developer is a company called Ørsted. Uh, it used to be known as Danish Oil and Natural Gas, but in recent years, it's gone green. Uh, someone who's been at that firm for a large part of that journey is Ulrich Stridbeck, and I spoke to him about what they are doing in the North Sea. Shall we hear from him now? Let's do it. Ulrich, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. So Ørsted is a company that has gone through a pretty profound transformation in recent years. Perhaps you could just start by giving us a little bit of the company's backstory. So we came from being a more or less traditional, conventional utility with power generation from fossil fuels 15 years ago, 10 years ago into today becoming a pure renewable energy producer. And the journey that we've taken is basically to, first of all, of course, phase out and transform the existing power portfolio that we had, and then expanding massively in our uh, renewable energy portfolio. And in that journey, we became the world leader in uh, developing offshore wind which is our core capability and core investment place. The majority of your offshore wind farms are in the North Sea. Other than heavy gales, what is it about the North Sea that makes it so attractive for wind farms? So I would have started by saying and mentioning the heavy gales. I think that's a very, very good uh, starting point. But in addition to that, compared with the size of those uh, waters, it's also 
relatively shallow in relatively many places. And the seabed, there's a lot of sand, so it's quite easy to hammer down the monopiles and erect the turbines. And finally, also, the North Sea is actually surrounded by people. We have uh, the UK, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, Norway surrounding the North Sea with heavy industrial centers, heavy consumption centers. So taking all those boxes makes probably the North Sea the honeypot of offshore wind in the world. And could you tell us a bit about what your outlook is for the development of offshore wind capacity in the North Sea? So the technology has now clearly developed through its childhood and well into its teenage years and early adulthood. We now, we have the technology scaled up massively. And today we are not talking so much about how expensive it is and how much subsidies we will need. Offshore wind is cost competitive. It's more a matter of we cannot afford not to develop that resource. It's a matter of the role it can play to get out of Putin's gas to help our nations to decarbonize and so on. Today, we are not looking so much at what we can afford, but the actual resource out there. And the interest organization, Wind Europe, a few years back and made a study where they saw that at least 600 gigawatt can be installed. Following that, the European Commission and the UK as well, they looked into what will we need? And the sum of those needs is that we will need likely some three, 400 gigawatt. So that's what we are looking into towards uh, 2050. And that can be done. Okay, and of that 300 to 400 gigawatt, how much of that do you anticipate will come from the North Sea? A guess could be between two and 300 gigawatts. The European Commission assessed that around 80 gigawatt can be installed in the Baltic Sea and, of course, also some scale in, in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. So remains to be seen. It's a matter of the economics, the infrastructure, and so on. But the North Sea is probably the most attractive in many settings. And I understand Ersted is getting involved with setting up something called energy islands in the North Sea. Could you tell me a little bit about what that is? So the thinking is that until now, we have been thinking in terms of scale as being a matter of building larger and larger turbines building larger and larger offshore wind sites. We prefer to erect between 80 and 100 turbines in one go. And as the turbines have increased, so has the sites. So now we're talking about one gigawatt or two gigawatt sites. That corresponds to a very large nuclear power station. That's what we prefer to install in one go. The next step to scale up even further to five gigawatt or even 10 gigawatt The problem becomes to get the power to shore in a manageable way. So there we believe that we will need to not send all the power into one country or one market, but start connecting with multiple markets. So building interconnectors into these structures. When you do that, you will have to find new innovative solutions for the grid. 
And this is where we see that a tool to do that could actually be to build physical islands to act as a hub, both for connecting very, very large-scale offshore wind, for interconnecting to shore, and maybe even to host hydrogen production or other activities that you know make sense to have close by these facilities. Well, Rick, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you very much. A pleasure. So, Mike, Alice, one of the points Ulrich was making there was that the North Sea's energy could be used to produce hydrogen power. As we heard from Matthew earlier, hydrogen is very energy intensive to produce, but it's also something that we're really going to rely upon as we phase out oil-based fuels. So that's shaping up to be a big part of this new North Sea economy. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the idea that it could be created on these sort of man-made islands. It feels very water world. I'm afraid I don't get that reference. Is that a film? What do you mean you don't get that reference? This is, we're, the, we're the same age. This is a mid-1990s classic. It is Kevin Costner's finest work. Anyway, for anyone else who hasn't seen the film, uh, the world has been overwhelmed by water. It's entirely covered in water. Kevin Costner's in it. You should give it a watch. It's great. Right. Sounds like uh, essential viewing. After the break, we're going to hear from one of the firms bidding to build one of those islands in the North Sea. But first, why not take out a subscription to The Economist? It will give you access to our colleagues' excellent reporting on strategic industries around the world and the recent riots in Brazil's capital. Listeners can get an introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You should check out our newsletters like Money Talks and The Bottom Line. They're at economist.com slash newsletters. As usual, all of those links are in the notes to this episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before the break, we heard about the scale of offshore wind development in the North Sea along with the proposed development of so-called energy islands, where interconnectors and maintenance staff will be based for wind farms, but also where hydrogen production could take place. Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, or CIP, is one of the firms bidding to build one of those islands. I spoke to one of its partners, Thomas Dalsgaard, about their plan. Thomas, hi. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Hi, you're welcome. You've launched a 3 billion euro hydrogen fund. Part of that will focus on incorporating hydrogen with offshore wind. And in fact, you have a proposal out on that at the moment. Can you give us a bit more background on that and explain the rationale for integrating the two? 
So the way we see it is that the way the world is evolving right now, I mean, there's a big need for really accelerating the switch into renewable energy sources, not just because of the climate, but also because energy independence from Russia and from fossil sources. So there's a big need for that. And we see a very strong synergy between offshore wind in particular and green hydrogen production, because in offshore wind, you can really get the scale of power production that you also need for these big electrolyzers that produces the hydrogen. And since hydrogen production is a flexible source of consumption and offshore wind is an intermittent source of power, you have that very strong synergy between these two technologies. So that's what we are sort of promoting in various projects around the globe and in particular in the North Sea. One idea you're pursuing is to incorporate hydrogen energy with offshore wind farms on artificial islands in the ocean. Could you tell us more about that? So the notion of energy islands is something that we've been working on for quite some time here at the Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. And the whole idea is to build, uh, you can say, a hub out in the middle of the sea, for instance, in the North Sea. We are planning for an island 100 kilometers off the coast of Denmark which is, in fact, a physical island that is built on concrete, sand, rocks. And the island itself is not very big. It's like 50 football pitches. But then surrounding the island, you would have a lot of offshore winds to the tune of 10 gigawatts, which is enough to basically power 10 million homes in Europe. But then the whole idea is to collect the power on the island and then distribute it across markets in Europe, Denmark, Netherlands, Germany, Norway, for instance, but also on the islands to produce green hydrogen. So you can use this synergy between the offshore wind and the hydrogen that we discussed before. And then you can pipe the hydrogen, which is a gas, down to where it's used in Germany, the Netherlands, and where it can be a one-to-one replacement of fossil natural gas. So that's the whole idea. And the value driver here is that we actually save a lot of money on power transmission costs, partly because we have better utilization of the cables, but partly also because some of the power is transformed into green hydrogen on the islands, and transporting the green hydrogen is much less expensive than transporting the power. You talked about distributing this power to various different markets that surround the North Sea. I suppose one of the potential challenges here is you have a lot of coordination required between different markets. How is this likely to play out in terms of the development of the infrastructure? Do you see any potential challenges around the corner? When you look at the political ambitions around the North Sea, two to 300 gigawatts of offshore winds is sort of what are in the plans right now. And that, of course, will require a lot of infrastructure being planned and a lot of wind farms being put out there, which again will need to be coordinated with all the other considerations that are out there, environmental, biodiversity, defense, shipping lanes, fisheries, and so forth. So all that, of course, needs to be seen together. But on the other hand, you also need to start somewhere. And this is where we have contributed with our thinking, say, let's start with an island in Danish waters, in the Danish economic zone, because there is kind of a Danish national decision to build that. You know, eventually we will also see other countries around the North Sea building the same kind of hubs, Germany, the Netherlands, UK, and so forth. And then, of course, over time, this infrastructure is going to evolve. And there, of course, there's going to be a big need for international coordination. And I guess more broadly, as you think about the development of the North Sea, 
in the years ahead, offshore wind, hydrogen, potentially other areas as well. How big do you think this is going to be for Europe's economic future more broadly? The North Sea is going to be crucial for Europe's economic future because 250 maybe gigawatts of offshore wind is going to fuel a lot of EU forever, basically. And I think for Europe, it's quite important that we have access also in our own rights to sort of cheap and reliable energy in our own backyards. And there the North Sea is the absolute key to that. The investments are going to be tremendous, of course. You know, 250 gigawatts, if that's the number, is going to require to the tune of more than 500 billion euros over the years to come, which is a very, very huge amount of money. But I think the money is actually there. And this is the interesting part. We can see when we are outraising funds for our funds for offshore wind and hydrogen, the appetite from the investors is there because they can also see the value in having that long-term, reliable and competitive energy in our own backyards. So it's more a matter now also of turning the political ambitions into actual action on the ground. Thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us on the show today. It's been fascinating to hear from you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. I'm back with The Economist's finance correspondent, Matthew Favas now. Matthew, thanks for sticking around. You're welcome. So we've talked a lot about wind farms and hydrogen power, but I understand there's also a number of other new industries people are eyeing in the North Sea. Can you tell us a bit about those as well? Yeah, that's right. I guess it's reminiscent of what happened in the past where, for example, a lot of hydropower in Britain allowed for the development of uh, the cotton industry and when a lot of cheap coal in the rural valley allowed for, for steelmaking and other heavy industries to develop. In this case, what we're seeing already is a lot of data cables being laid down at the bottom of the sea and a lot of data centers being either considered or even built around the North Sea. And that's because data centers need a lot of cheap power because you have a lot of countries around the North Sea that are exchanging a lot of data. And also because the climate is really mild, which means that you don't need a lot of power to cool down the servers. So I would expect quite a lot more to happen in that regard. A number of projects that are being considered, uh, waiting approval, in the field of carbon capture and storage. That is to say, to use empty natural gas fields, of which there are quite a lot in the North Sea, to store carbon dioxide for those industries that still are going to produce quite a lot because they can't be decarbonized quite as fast. That shows the sort of synergies that can be used in the North Sea where you can use some of the old infrastructure like natural gas pipelines and empty gas fields to greenify the economy. That's fascinating. So there's clearly huge latent potential in, in the North Sea economy in a variety of different areas. What do you think some of the potential barriers might be in terms of its development in the years ahead? Yeah, I would see perhaps three types of barriers that need to be worked on. The first one would be permitting and and regulation. So today, it could take as much as 10 years to get a permit for an offshore wind farm, which of course is far too long if we are to achieve the ambitious targets that we have. And also there's a lack of clarity on the regulation around green hydrogen. For example, it's not really well defined what counts as green hydrogen. So if we are to fast track a lot of projects, and there's a lot of capital waiting to be invested, we need greater clarity on the rules. Well, the second one is obviously money. We'll need a lot of uh, capital to be invested in, in these projects. And it's also political courage because there's going to be 
probably quite a bit of resistance to this region acquiring so much prominence, resistance from other regions that today are at the center of the industry in Europe. And so some countries might resist this because they play a big role today. So think, for example, of the Franco-German engine, which has powered the European economy and politics for half a century or more. You know, France is a bit less of a part in this revolution, even though it, it's considering its own projects. And the last thing is, and it's related, is collaboration. We'll need a lot of collaboration because if you think of the North Sea, you know, it's not just offshore wind farms that are going to be active there. It's also a very productive fishing terrain. And that's fisheries from a lot of different countries, and they need a lot of space. And they can't use the nets, for example, where there are cables laid down on the floor. It's also a lot of navies that are circulating in the North Sea, and they need you know, their own areas to operate away from disturbance. So this needs to be worked on, and we need the countries to speak to each other to sort out problems. And the good thing is, in the three areas, you see progress already. The rules are being worked on. Red tape is being cut in some areas, or at least there are ambitions to do that. There's a lot of capital waiting to be invested. And in terms of collaboration, the countries are clearly speaking to each other and signing deals. Even, you know, countries outside the EU, like Norway and the UK, are speaking to EU members on friendly terms to make that happen. And you see also the Navy collaborating with energy companies. Sometimes some cameras and intelligence gathering devices being put at the top of wind turbines. So it's all coming together, but it needs to happen a bit faster than it is today for this vision to come true. Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me. So, Alice, Mike, what do you make of what we've heard today? So much of this episode I found so fascinating. And these sort of hydrogen islands do sound like some kind of futuristic place a Bond villain might live. It's kind of mad that we're talking about them existing. And I do really enjoy the sort of deep irony that the North Sea, which is abundant in fossil fuels, is also this bountiful source of not one, but two potential green fuels. The bit I found most interesting was thinking through what people can do with this sort of excess wind power or excess energy that is generated, because it's just sort of a totally new way of thinking about energy in the fossil fuel era. You think about it as a scarce resource. But it seems like with a lot of these new renewable fuels, once you have scaled them up, you actually can end up with enough excess energy that you can do really interesting things with it. The other use case I have heard about for how to sort of use excess energy that might be generated in this way is some Bitcoin miners were telling me that this was one way that proof of work mining could be green. So you use the excess energy generated by wind power to set up a mining rig and and mine Bitcoin. I have to say, uh, using it to make green hydrogen sounds much more productive to me. I sort of love the idea of the North Sea being a place of massive economic activity because it has that sort of historical role. I love going round places on holidays in the edge of that region and seeing the little landmarks and relics from the, the Hanseatic League in the 15th century. You can get some of that in places like Norfolk. I realise for our British listeners, I sound a little bit like Alan Partridge, but it genuinely is really fascinating. And, and the North Sea's always had this very important economic role, at least in Europe. 
And it reminded me this entire story in a weird way of some of the stuff we did on Indonesia last year. Obviously, it's incredibly different in so many ways, but there's this common vein of a part of the world finding that it has this colossal energy resource that's suddenly really valuable because of the changing priorities that people have around power generation and the environment. So you have wind in the North Sea or nickel for batteries in Indonesia and using that resource to power an industrial policy, basically. And I guess that turns on its head the way I, and I think probably most people, used to think about industrial hubs and their growth, which is that you get the industry first and then you pay for a way to power it by what you make. Whereas it seems that sometimes it's sort of the opposite way around in that the industrial growth has to follow the prevalence of the energy. And this acute focus on energy needs and costs and the abundance or shortage of it It's not exactly brand new, but it's something that's so incredibly acute now. It sort of flips around a lot of the ways we think about things. Tom, what what did you make of it all? Yeah, I think those are all great points. One other thing that's really come out for me on this is that it's just going to require a lot of coordination to get right. So these nine countries that border the North Sea are going to have to really work together on issues like infrastructure and permadinas as well as managing the impact on all the existing industries like fishing that that also rely on those waters. So it's going to be really fascinating just to watch how that plays out. And with that, I think it's time for us to pivot to our stats of the week. Alice, care to kick us off? Yes. So my stat of the week is 4.2% or specifically negative 4.2% because it is the drop in enrollment in universities in America since 2020. So there are about 10 million students in the US, but that's almost half a million less than there were in 2020. And for a while, people thought that the pandemic might be messing with student enrollment numbers, people postponing in 2020, then coming back in 21. But actually, there's now but a steady decline over the last three years, which has amassed to this quite significant drop. And universities in the US are starting to think about what it might look like if it's really just got too expensive or become unattractive for other reasons as potentially the the driver of this. It's particularly pronounced among the less competitive colleges, so places like community college and those kinds of places rather than the elite schools. But still, I found that very surprising and, and quite a significant drop. Well, my statistic of the week is also somewhat pandemic related and and rather sort of end of pandemic policy related. It is 30 times or I suppose 3000%. And the figure relates to the number of applications by Chinese tourists for tourist visas to Singapore through the Chinese travel booking platform Ctrip which is the amount that that figure has grown since December the 27th, China opening up to the rest of the world. Apparently, Singapore is one of the first stops on the list for a lot of Chinese tourists. So over here, I'm sort of waiting for a fairly large influx of people who, for the most part, haven't left the country for three years. Right. So boom times for Singapore's tourist industry, by the sounds of it. My start of the week is 6,021. That is the number of Rolls Royces that were sold last year. It's actually the highest ever number in the company's 119-year history and an 8% increase on the figure from last year. So despite the uh, market turmoil and, and the cost of living crisis, I think we can all rest easy in the knowledge that at least some people are out there keeping the uh, luxury car market alive. 
So the summary of our stats are that no one's going to university, everyone's going on holiday and buying luxury cars. That's uh, <laughs> that's, that's it. All right to it's me. all good. Why why go to university when you've got your Rolls Royce to drive around in? Like you know, better things to do. Well, with that, all that's left to do is to say thank you to Jesper Frost Rasmussen, Ulrich Stridbeck, and Thomas Dalsgaard. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. And the executive producer is Hannah Marino. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.